Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, July 4, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. And to all of my listeners in the United States of America, happy Independence Day. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz guitarist and educator Nathan Borton. Hailing from Wichita, Kansas, Nathan Borton is a Michigan-based jazz guitar player that draws heavily from the Midwestern tradition of bebop and blues. Nathan has played with and alongside names such as Rodney Whitaker, Michael Deese, Paul Keller, Diego Rivera, and Tom Niffick. He has also performed at various music festivals, including the Detroit Jazz Festival, the Mid-Atlantic Jazz Festival, the East Lansing Jazz Festival, the Michigan Jazz Festival, and the Wichita Jazz Festival. Nathan's most recent release, his debut album, Each Step, is through Origin Records. The record, produced by Randy Napoleon, was released January of 2022 and has already gained praise from the likes of trombone giant Michael Deese and Benedetto CEO Howard Paul. Nathan was also a winner of the 2019 Wilson Center International Guitar Competition located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as placing as a finalist in 2018. He won two Downbeat Awards in 2019 for Best Graduate Jazz Soloist and Best Live Engineering and Production, as well as winning the Paul Carr Discovery Act Award in 2020 with the Sincolor Glassman Quintet. Nathan is an avid educator of music as well. He has taught at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and at the Michigan State Community Music School in Detroit.
Nathan has also taught and mentored at various camps around the nation, such as the Brevard Jazz Institute in Brevard, North Carolina, and the Spectrum Music Camp in East Lansing, Michigan. During the COVID-19 lockdown, Nathan started an educational YouTube channel, which has since grown into an international jazz hub, providing information for students around the world. He has collaborated with many famous educators, including Jens Larsen and Christian von Hamert. Nathan is currently pursuing a Doctor of Musical Arts degree at the University of Northern Colorado. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Nathan Borton. Hello, Nathan. How's it going? It's uh, it's a happening thing today. We're actually having some beautiful weather for a change. Uh, rained all day yesterday up here in Wisconsin, but... Uh, that's some. That's why we call it the month of May. It may rain. It may snow. It may be sunny. We never know. Anyway, <laughs> that's good. It's really great to have the opportunity to talk with you and to uh, give my listeners an opportunity to learn more about you and about uh, your music and music making. Uh, oh, thank one, you. One question I am always asking my guests uh, is sort of their origin story, if you will. And so my first question for you is who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music? Yeah, I think, uh, so for music, it's, it's, I did not really come from like a musical family. So my initial upbringing of music was like my mom listening to like Enya and, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, so I was like, oh, that's music, you know, this nice serene, not that Enya is bad by any means, I guess you could, you know if you have an opinion on that, sure. But to me, Enya was just like this background music or mm -hmm. she played like Backstreet Boys and stuff, um, which I, I like, I'll go back and listen to those guys. But back then it wasn't really, it didn't turn on the light bulb for me. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the first thing that kind of turned on the light bulb was uh, my cousin. He had this, um, do you know the band Disturbed? Ten, like um, I do. Yeah, yeah. So they, he, I would like wanted to be just like my cousin and um you know, he was listening to like Disturbed and wore all these like metal t-shirts. And I was like, oh man, I want to be just like him. So then he gave me like his copy of 10,000 Fists and I had my first CD player and mm -hmm. I just like plugged all my headphones, turned it on and listened to the whole record. And then for some reason, I don't, I just never felt like that with, with music before. And, um, you know, after that, I just couldn't stop listening to music. It was like almost a drug. So mm -hmm. I think that was the the first thing that really turned me on to just music was mm -hmm. that CD, which is funny because I'll go back and listen to it. And like, I don't know, I don't really like Disturbed now. I'm like, oh, it's kind of corny. But <laughs> um, I think yeah. back then it just, it just, I don't know what it did. It turned on something in me. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I think we all have that, you know, initial thing. We, you know, we get exposed to things that our parents listen to and you and I are very, very much different in terms of our generations uh, and ages. And for me, it was, I, I remember growing up, the how we the music that was always on was uh, Broadway show tunes. Mm. And, or if they'd been made into movies, you know, the um, uh, Broadway shows that had then been musicals that had been made into films. And uh, the other one I always recall that my dad used to play and I loved was the uh, the soundtrack for the uh, documentary Victory at Sea. Okay. Rogers did the music, you know, that was pretty cool. And then of yeah. course, uh, 
swing era big band music because that's what my my parents that was the music of their age and uh so yeah i think we all have those those different kinds of things that catch our ears and then you're right once you find something that really hooks you you don't stop and uh i think i think music is like a a, a drug it, it goes from being a hobby to an uh, uh an addiction to an obsession uh, so we all have different ways, but what turned you on then to jazz? You know, um, so I played, like I said, I, it was, I was kind of like rock guitarist for a long time and, uh, I didn't really play with, you know, it was like a hobby guitarist. Um, mm -hmm. I would just listen to, I, I wouldn't read music or anything, you know, I'd just put on like records and try to play along with my guitar, which I guess is pretty normal how guitarists come up. Right. At least to my understanding, it's just you know, it's, it's lots, it's less sheet music, more like listening. Right. But then, um, I didn't really even know what jazz was till, um, I met this guy. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas and, um, this guy named Randy Zellers. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's like, kind of like one of the local stays at that city. You know, every city mm -hmm. has their like local masters. He was one of them. Mm -hmm. And he taught at the university there called friends university. And, mm -hmm. um, so when I, I, I got in there and I, and I wanted to actually, I went there cause I wanted to do um, like audio recording. And there was a guy named not, he didn't teach there, but he was around there. His name was Macasia Ryan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He did the, um, uh, his, it's a long side story, but to sum it up, he got multiple sclerosis, used to work in LA, then moved back to Wichita where he came from. And uh, I wanted to like assist with him and he was involved in that um, scene. Anyway, I started taking lessons with Randy and I, he played all this stuff. I've like never seen this before. It was crazy. He could just be like, Oh yeah, this sound. He could just like play a chord on the guitar. This is what you do over this. And mm -hmm. I, that was like blowing my mind and it would just be like the most beautiful chords or like the, the crunchiest chords. And no matter what, it sounded like killing. And I think just selfishly, I wanted to do that even if I didn't like, like jazz, but then as I started to practice it and like, just do the listening. Cause I really wanted to be a good guitar player. I was like, you know, that turned it on for me it was just wanting to be like Randy. So I, you know, kept practicing and doing the stuff that he did. And then eventually that turned into like an actual love for the music. So I guess in some ways it started out narcissistic and then turned selfless. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's like, you know, it's like one of those things where you, uh, you know, you hear a, a particular sound and it just really gets under your skin. Yeah. You know, I, th and it, I think we, you know, we all have those kinds of experiences and we go, man, this is what I want to do. There's something really uh, attractive about, uh, you know, those uh, sevenths and flat fifths that, uh, that just really make me want to play that kind of music is that, and, you know, and, and I suppose that that kind of gets me uh, into the next question that I was going to ask you. Uh, sure. Uh you know, because, uh, you know, jazz comes in a lot of different flavors. I mean, my, myself, I have six different jazz groups that I front. Uh, I, I have that luxury because I'm retired. Oh, man, that's, that uh, from, must be awesome. From full-time teaching so I can devote my time to, uh, uh, you know, playing and having different groups to address my different uh, tastes in mm -hmm. jazz music. And so, like, tonight is the night my trad group is we're playing out tonight and on friday i'm going out with my uh, my modern group uh, to a, a venue in milwaukee but jazz comes in a lot of different flavors 
And so when you think about it, it's kind of an academic slash philosophical question. What is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors? And then how does jazz differ from other styles of music? Yeah, I think that's that's such a, like a deep, hard question. <laughs> like uh, there's then depending on who you talk to, right, it could have different answers. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll just give the one that's personal to me. And, you know, uh, some people like it, maybe some people won't. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, at its core, what makes jazz different from other styles and in my opinion, like all the different, you know, quote unquote flavors of jazz have at least some element of this. And that's like, you know, the black American experience, right? Um, Cause this music, it comes from that, that lineage. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, me being like a, a white man, like it's not something that's um, it doesn't come. It's not, I adopted this music, right. It's mm -hmm. not part of like my lineage. And so because of that, I think, you know, you have to, in from my perspective, you have to like try to put yourself through, like studying the history, putting yourself through, like not actually, right? But like putting yourself mentally through like what the black community went through and is still going through um, helps you channel what the core of this music is. And that's, in my opinion, the blues. So um, mm -hmm. it's two things like the black American experience and then the blues at its like very core of this, of this music. So you know, and I think if you can use the blues to, you know, get rid of, you know, your pain, your suffering, your sorrow to help express yourself in that sort of way, just as it's been used in the past and still is used today, um, that can help you connect deeply to this music and sound authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think if you connect with that inner blues, no matter what you're playing, if it's like trad, bebop, modal, uh, modern, anything that helps that jazz quote unquote aspect of it come out. Now you could say, other styles are influenced by that and they have that and that's true but i think you know jazz specifically it's that that core of the blues and the core of the improvisation to it too right because it's at least in my opinion instrumental jazz it's like heavily influenced by the improvisational element so mm -hmm. when you combine those two together you get what i think is jazz and that could be multiple things but specifically mm -hmm. that's what i think the core of it is so mm -hmm. No, I think that's uh, that's an excellent description, uh, you know, and uh, when I used to teach jazz history and and, you know, students would always kind of press me on this when we were trying to find a way to define jazz. And I I would I would say, well, you know, one of the problems is is like trying to define jazz is like trying to grab a handful of jello, uh, the tighter <laughs> you squeeze the more slips between your fingers. That's a great analogy. And uh, well, thank you. Uh, it, it seemed to satisfy my students. And I would, I would always talk about that uh, there are different degrees of jazzness in music. I mean, you can find elements of jazz in a lot of uh, music, even some pop music. It's very heavily influenced, but uh, there's, uh, there's, also, you know, that which we might consider to even be more hardcore than, say, other, uh, you know, kinds of music and so forth. Uh, but you could say the same thing about country music. I mean, there's a some country music is is really, uh, you know, down and gritty and 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 more back to its roots. And sometimes it sounds like. You know, it's just another pop music, except they're wearing a cowboy hat and boots. I mean, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. 
So those those are kind of those are kind of interesting uh, elements. I think though that you you hit the head on the nail when you you know it is part of the Black American experience that and and the melting pot that is our culture in the United States. Yeah, you know um, because we've got the the European elements, but also African elements in the music. I think that's that's always too it uh has made it such a an appealing uh art form yes definitely yeah well all right let me ask uh maybe another question that goes along with this i mean it's it's fair to say though that jazz as a musical style is not at the center or the peak of american popular music today yeah of course no uh and it probably hasn't been for 70 years or more um, yeah. because once we we started alienating dancers i think that's when they, we started <laughs> saying jazz is a music that you should sit and listen to not just <laughs> just dance to um but why and how has jazz been able to sustain itself it's been around for over a century and and how how has the music been able to sustain itself and then concomitant with that what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century yeah that's these are all like really deep questions so i appreciate you asking them and it, yeah. it makes you think too as you know someone who's I would say dedicating their life to this music, it makes you think about it, right? Um, yeah. And again, there's so many different um, answers and I'll just give the one that's, uh, you know, my answer to it. Um, so I think, you know, at its core, you know, jazz is, makes people feel something, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, throughout history, like jazz has sustained itself because of its ability to make the listener feel, in my opinion. And so like in the 1930s and 40s, people loved like swing music because of how it made them feel and gave them an escape from reality. Right. Mm -hmm. So and that lineage like continued it, with the escaping reality, the feel good music with like pop singers like Nat or Frank. Right. And then on the other hand, you had musicians that, you know, made you feel a certain way. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, or made you feel like um more introspective like what you talked about sitting there and listening right it's a different kind of feeling but you still feel at least in my opinion if they do it right you still feel connected to the artist and um and inspires you to want to create right people like bird Diz, oscar west you know and so on so i think for me jazz has survived because of its ability to make people like feel and it doesn't feel like other genres you could argue yeah like you know pop music or um, rock music or this music makes me feel too and that's valid right but when you listen to jazz at least i get a different feeling from it um being someone who like started from like rock music and then went to mm -hmm. jazz there's something special about this genre and that's what made me like stop playing that music and come over to here and i think um, it goes on that second type of feeling that makes you want to like create and inspire. And um, yeah, I guess you could say that rock does that too. But, you know, for me, it's those sounds that are not played in other music, at least not overtly, mm -hmm. right? Maybe mm -hmm. you could, mm -hmm. there, there are, it's, it's used in like classical music and other type of things, but not in the way that jazz uses it because, you know, it's the core of that, the blues element to that too. So um, I think that's kind of why it's just when you, if it's done right, when you sit down and play jazz, it inspires people to like listen and on to you on a personal level because you're essentially speaking to them through music, right? Mm -hmm. And you could have rehearsed things, but there's something special if I go to like a rock concert, I'm feeling the energy and I'm like really excited and that music makes me feel something. But when I go to a jazz concert, even if it's like 
old school like swain or trad jazz i still feel a deeper connection to those musicians now that could be my personal bias towards this mm -hmm. music but mm -hmm. i do mm -hmm. think that's what helps people like you know people have been giving money to this music to keep it alive so to speak mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and i think that inspires them to do that versus other types of music because of that deep feeling of that personal connection that um you get when you listen to this kind of music so yeah. um <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I'm only I, I'm not laughing at your answer. I'm just laughing at something I once told somebody that people like to go listen to jazz performers be, for the same reason they like to go watch stock car races because they want to <laughs> they want to see if there's going to be a wreck. Oh no! <laughs> well, you know, I've often told I've I've often told students. I said, you know, jazz is a different kind of art form in that. The art is being created as you're witnessing it. It's not like there's a whole lot that's pre-planned other than, than, you know, you get some musicians that get on stage together that share a common language. You call up a tune, which then you assume everybody knows what that tune is. You call out a key that you're going to play it in and wham, they start making music because they're, they're expressing themselves in, um, in a common language, but it's an extemporaneous experience. Mm. It's not like it's, it's sort of like uh, uh, the analogy I used to, it's the, it's the difference between say going to a Shakespeare play where everything's being read from a script and it's all been rehearsed versus going to improv comedy where the troupe is just given, here's a topic, you know, create something to amuse me, you know? And, uh, and we we both probably have experienced as performers those time when there has been a wreck, but we've always found a way to clean it up <laughs> and make something out of it and go on. And in many ways, I think that's the beauty of the art as well. And I think what the the audience, uh, knowingly or not knowingly, in finds that they enjoy is that wow that's a that's the guy just made or you know the person just made up a really interesting musical thought on the spur of the moment that i hadn't thought about before yeah. you know and and uh and i think that that uh i think you're absolutely right when you talk about that uh communication that that, that goes on and why live music is so important because it's a uh, the music making and the consumption of the music in that communal sort of atmosphere, whether it's a you know a club or a festival or whatever, uh, I think is is important for all of us because yes, I I don't think you would disagree. If you do, please say so. But when I'm playing for a live audience, I respond musically what I'm I'm doing to what how my audience is responding. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and that's what it gets that connection, right? You see some and I think that's kind of there, you know, there's different ideas on that. But um, there's performers that like try to not connect with the audience, right? right and right. Um, yeah, and that's where my opinion comes in. I still think that even, you know, if they're not trying to connect with the audience, they're connecting with the music. And that makes it like, mm -hmm. that inspires the audience. Now, me personally, I think you should always think about the audience, like what you're talking about. But even mm -hmm. the artists that try to like, alienate the audience, like that's a vibe, they're still connecting with the music. So in some way, mm -hmm. they are connecting with the audience, because that's if, right. Yeah, if, uh, <laughs> if they weren't doing any sort of connection, no one would listen to them. And you know, nobody would give them any attention. So no. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's maybe a cliche, but you know how we'd watch 
we we'd you know we go oh miles he's so cool look at that he's yeah playing. yeah that's right and it's like he doesn't care what anybody thinks but isn't that so cool but listen to what he's doing you know and as if he doesn't if if he isn't thinking you know yeah i'm doing what i'm doing and i can tell that they're responding to it you know kind of thing so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well i i think that there's there's a lot of a lot of good thought there and I like to ask these deep questions because I think they need to be asked and we need to be talked about. That's, you know, this is what you would have had if you'd had a class with me. See, no, I like it. I like it. I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> well, you know, try to get people to engage in critical thinking and metacognition. You know, that's, that's, that's the big thing was thinking of really thinking about it and then thinking about why we think what we think, you know, that sort of thing. I think that's well, important. Yeah. Well, anyway, but anyway, getting back to, you know, your career, you know, you've had some marvelous experiences uh, as a musician and you've played with a lot of other uh, really great musicians. What is one lesson you have learned from working with other professionals that you still carry with you today? Well, I mean, there's, there's so many lessons. Uh, I think, you know, the first that comes to my mind, at least in this point in my career, is uh, lessons I took from Randy Napoleon and uh, Paul Keller, those two guys. They mm -hmm. they um, helped me a lot in when I was in Michigan. Um, and that was, you know, it seems really simple, but uh, I mean, it seems very simple, but you'd be surprised. Um, it's how to start and end a tune. <laughs> no, I think it's great there. They, uh, like Randy taught me like so many things and Paul did too, but that was like both of them really were, like when you play a song of music, you know, how can you, you know, before, like in, in sort of, you know, in, instead of just like counting off a tune, right? How can you like set up a song or how can you convey with just like some lines, like the way that the song's going to feel or the way that the people are going to interact with your music. And then in turn, um, how can you end the song, right? Because I think a lot of times the classic, you know, it's, it's always the joke is like when, you know, like what we were talking about before, like the train wrecks, right? And I feel like a lot of those train wrecks always happen at the end of tunes. Um, and it's like, nobody mm -hmm. knows how to get to the end of the tune, right? And when I listen to amazing musicians like Randy and Paul, when they play, like they could just play any tune, even if they like kind of don't know the tune, they'll just hear the tune and it'll sound like professional and have like a really great start and a really great end, even if it's like a quote unquote, like canned ending, right? At least it's something. And, um, that's something that I think was one of the most valuable lessons was playing with them is because mm -hmm. I would just do it like I don't normally do with my friends. Like I'll just like, mm -hmm. you know, count off a tune and then Paul would be like, how about you just play something? And I'd be like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. He's like, mm -hmm. just play something that makes me feel the tune. And so I had to learn that through, um, you know, gigs with him and my lessons with Randy about what that meant. And I think that's um, a really important thing that needs to be taught. Um, mm -hmm. No matter what genre you're playing is how mm -hmm. to um, just by yourself, you know, it inform someone what you're doing without doing anything with your voice, with just your music. Right. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, that's a great, that's a great idea because, you know, I think about it, you're absolutely right. How many jazz tunes all start one, two, one, two, three, four, you know, instead of finding something other way, you've really got me thinking now I'm going to start working on that with my band. That's a, that's, with uh that's a really great way and then think same way with ending how many recordings do we hear today that all end with a fade out on a chorus 
Yeah, yeah. With like, you know, and that's not bad. Like, I think that's cool. Like to like count off a tune. Some tunes need to be counted off, and some tunes need to be like you know have like a vamp that fades out, and that's cool. But if that's like yeah. the only thing that you can do, then it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't inspire. I think the other musicians in the audience. That's what kind of keeps. I think when people are like, oh, you know, jazz sounds. You know, when I like my mom, for instance, she loves jazz. Don't get me wrong, she loves jazz, but she'll like. She's like the. Um, how do I say it? If if she's not like enjoying it, then I know other people won't because it's like, you know, mm -hmm. if, if she's just the um, I'm trying to say it without being like mean, like someone who's not like educated on jazz. Right. So you don't know mm -hmm. all the little things like, oh, I don't mm -hmm. know. Like, but if if she's not like feeling that, then, you know, that's a good set to other people. They're not probably going to feel it, too. Right. Because it's not being mm -hmm. like fed to them. But if you can do all these things and change it up per tune, like, OK, this time we're just going to start like, you know, like like Bud did and just I'll play some like bebop lines and I'll get you in or I'm going to do like a Oscar Peterson trio thing and I'm going to like play like some block chord voicings or some like Count Basie things that, mm -hmm. you know, get us in like just all these little different things I try to think about. And um, I think Paul and Randy are the masters at those. So I try to um, channel them a lot. So, you know, you mentioned Basie. I remember the last time I saw Count Basie live was in 1982. Oh. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> and uh, well, I was, I was, uh, it's when I was at North Texas and this buddy of mine who played, uh, who was a guitarist, he was a Count Basie fanatic. Mm. And he said to me, uh, Hey, we're going to Dallas. This is where in Denton, he says, we're going down to Dallas. Basie's playing at, uh, uh, I can't remember the venue now, but, uh, and I said, okay. So we, I had a car, he didn't. So we drove down, turned out, the somebody had hired the Basie band to play for a dance cool. in Dallas and, uh, or some kind of, you know, it wasn't a concert and it wasn't at a club. So we went down, we were, got there early and we worked our way through the crowd up to where they had the band roped off and we got as close as we could get. And I stood in front of Freddie green all night long just watching him. And of course he, he sits right in the crook of the piano. And so the count was there and it was really fun to watch that rhythm section work. I mean, talk about a well-oiled machine. Oh my gosh. But anyway, you know, Basie would just start playing a, a riff or a line from a tune and he'd, he'd tell the bass player what tune he wanted called up. Yeah. The bass player would tell the drummer, the drummer would tell the, uh, whoever was next to him the trom in the trombone section it would get passed through the band you'd see the guys going through their book pulling <laughs> up the music and then you know and then you, th there was no counting it off they knew when to come in you know yeah uh and it was uh but it was really uh it was great and freddie green was just he was fun to watch didn't oh, pull out a piece of sheet music all night long until they called up it was a Stevie Wonder tune. I don't remember which one it was. <laughs> Apparently, funny. he didn't have it memorized, and he finally had to put his reading glasses on and and yeah. and bring out the music. But uh, now I'm kind of getting what you're saying about you know starting tunes without just having to count them off, because he would set the groove and everything just with what he played at the piano. It was really it's really something. Oh, man, that would have been amazing to see. It was it was fun. It was fun. I, uh, I, I enjoyed, uh, 
enjoyed. Actually, I should have said it was the last time I saw the Basie band with Basie. I have seen yeah. the Basie band since then, but but that was the last time with when Basie was still alive. But I want to talk about something else that really impresses me about your playing. Uh, and what I've listened, you you include a, a lot of standards in your mm. in your recordings and I like in your YouTube. And of course, you've got a whole educational series on online uh, where you're transcribing and and uh, and so forth, which is is really a wonderful resource for uh, young people out there or anybody. Actually, they don't have to be young uh, who wants to learn more about jazz and about jazz guitar playing but what i uh, my question for you it's coming up here i <laughs> included in my show notes a link to your performance of skylark your solo performance which i just love because i love skylark as a tune anyway but my question for you nathan is how do you approach a standard to make the music sound fresh and unique to you because you know there's been a lot of other great guitarists that have recorded skylark yeah so how do you approach the study and performance of a standard uh that's another great question um i think it comes down to um two things um this is just the way i process information is one when I learn like a standard, I try to like mimic as much as I can. Like, I don't try to be myself. I try to, mm -hmm. if I'm like listening to, you know, Skylark, I'll go listen to, um, you know, maybe like Ella Cena version and learn like her version or like Frank or Anita O'Day or whoever like the singer is. I try to go to singers for these like melodies mm -hmm. on songbook tunes. And then I'll go listen to like an instrumental version, like Oscar or like Nat or something. Um, and then I try to listen to how they approach the changes and how they approach like what, how they do it. And I learn all these different versions and I'm trying to understand like how people have done it before. And then what I do is I think about, you know, well, what do I like? You know, what chords or what sounds do I mm -hmm. like? Mm -hmm. And I don't worry about, um, Honestly, I'm not, uh, I don't worry. I'm, I'm not thinking like, oh, uh, like sometimes people get really caught up in like, oh, someone has done this before or anything else. But I believe, um, oh, I forget what the, when I first started playing jazz, there was, oh, what was his name? There was, um, I saw Branford Marcellus and it was like 2000, uh, 2011, 12. So it was, it was a while ago. But he was playing. Um, it was his group that was. Um, it's a, a, you know, excuse my French, but it's four motherfuckers playing tunes. You know, in the that record, mm -hmm. yeah. I think they say MFs, but um, the the drummer on that record. I talked to him after that show, and I asked him like that kind of question. I was like, "How can I make?" You know, I didn't know. I'm just asking people stuff, and uh, I heard jazz is like everyone has to be unique. So I asked him. I was like, "How do you be unique?" And then he told me. If you play a Charlie Parker solo note for note, if you play that solo, it's going to sound like you playing it, not Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you'll always be unique. And I kind of, mm. you know, I kind of took that and like made that part of like my core identity. So even if I'm like mimicking these people like note for note and I'm trying my hardest to sound exactly like them, mm -hmm. I can get close, but you'll never be exactly like them. Mm -hmm. And when you just like let go and you play the stuff that comes out, even if it's like other people's lines and ideas, you're going to put it in a way it's like English, right? I'm talking to you and I made mm -hmm. these words. Mm -hmm. like the, I didn't make up these words, but I'm able to say what I want to you. And that's the way I view 
music is even if I'm like mimicking people and playing their stuff, it's still going to sound like me playing it at the end of the day. So when I play these standards and I play, um, you know, anything I want uh, or like, I'm going to naturally just sound like me, even if I'm copying people. And, and as you get older and develop, you know, more taste, you find like what makes what you know, maybe I like putting this chord here all the time. Or I like this sound, like this triad over whatever, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But um, you develop that through like your own expression and your own um, understanding of other people's music. So I think that's what it comes from is you'll naturally always sound like you, but you have to always be studying other people to find, you know, what mm -hmm. makes you sound like you. So mm -hmm. that's a fascinating idea. I mean, because you're right. Uh, even Even if I were to play like say play a char try to play Charlie Parker tune I, there's no way I can make I can make it sound exactly like Charlie Parker even if possible. even if I were an alto sax player you know but even on you know <laughs> or if I were to play a try and play a Miles Davis tune yeah I, I am not going to I can't be Miles Davis because I'm not Miles Davis so yeah. even if I play his music and I play a transcription of a solo he played I'm still going to have my personal uh well that maybe there'll be foibles but there'll be whatever it's still you're right that's a really great way to look at it i hadn't thought about that uh I, I think and it, it takes some of the pressure off too right yeah if, yeah you can just be free to do what you want to do and know that it'll be special and uh you know it'll be fine and the more you do that the more you discover who you are so i think that's kind of yeah. the approach i've always taken so so it's it's okay I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying here. We're. we're you know, I, I'm not saying it's okay in terms of it, uh, giving any sort of uh, blessing to the, doing this practice. <laughs> no, I think it's okay to uh, to mimic or to uh, learn from. Uh, I mean, even Clark Terry, mm -hmm. a great player, used to say, first you imitate, then you assimilate, then you innovate." Yes, and yeah. and. Um, and I think the idea, or Coltrane used to say, you practice, 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 then you forget everything you practice and just play. Yes. Uh, it's a matter of assimilation. And then the you that is you, regardless of what you're going to play, is going to make it your music. Yes, exactly. Because I find I sound the worst when I'm thinking too much about what I'm playing. And if I just let go and play and I trust the music, it's going to sound good. That's when I think I sound the best. And when, you know, if I get a reaction from people like, oh, that was so great. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's when I just let go. And I'm, you know, sometimes I would be like, oh, I'm so mad. I didn't put in this line here or whatever. Mm -hmm. and that's like this, the student and the jazz student side of me talking. But if you just let go and let the actual music flow through you, it'll always sound good. So, well, Okay, so so you've expanded my mind here, which is great. See, I've learned something today too. That's, <sighs> I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way before because you know I'd often think, well, you know, you're just being a trite copycat if you play everything. But actually, you can't be. The only thing that could reproduce the way somebody else plays would be a recording of them of doing it. Yeah, and only, we're not. We're 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 not. We're because we have too many variables. Yes. And so I think, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well. That's a great, great discussion, a great way to answer that. But let's let's kind of drill down a little bit more about your approaches to various elements uh, uh, of music as a jazz performer and as a composer and and how you uh, manipulate various 
elements to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Hmm. Can you repeat? I don't understand. Yeah, well, understand. okay. What I'm getting at is, uh, let's, let's think about, uh, okay. So we can experiment with chord voicings. We right. can, we can experiment with, um, say, uh, rhythms. Yes. Of a, of a melodic line. We can experiment where we put emphasis on the different syllables of, of, of a melodic <laughs> That's right. line. That's right. I, I, those are, I guess, what I'm thinking about as, as far as different elements of music. Uh, you know, we we can choose to put accents or 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 not or turn a, a particular rhythmic figure around or so forth. But I, so what I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is are there various approaches to the elements of music that you as a jazz performer or composer utilize in creating different colors and forms of musical expression and yeah. how, and how and why do you apply them? Yeah. Okay. I think I understand now. So it's more of like a technical question. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like what I, you know, there's all the kinds of different flavors of jazz as you talked about. Right. And each one has like, if you wanted to play, you know, um, you know, modern and you're a saxophone player, maybe you like look at some like Mark Turner stuff. I mean, I don't know. I like, that's the first person that comes to my mind. Um, or like if you're a guitar player and you want to play in that style, maybe you look at like Mike Morano or like Kurt Rosenwinkel or, you know, people from like that era. Um, but you know, I think the first thing is I like, I want to play kind of more straight ahead in that kind of genre. And I want to maybe like infuse some like Thad Jones, like stuff into that, like the way that, kind of it's 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 just it's the lineage we all come from a lineage right so my lineage has been like randy zellers then randy napoleon and then now like i'm studying with steve kovalchek so it's kind of this like fusion of them so like from randy right um he has such like you, do you, you know randy's playing correct or no <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. I, I'll check it out, but I am not familiar with him. Oh, no, that's okay. So Randy, um, he's like heavily inspired by like Wes. He, he plays with his fingers. Okay. <laughs> so like, cause he couldn't like, he's not like, you know, he can do the, the, the double jointed West thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think the screen went white there. Yeah. My video has been a little bit, there we go. Oh, there We're we back. go. No worries. Um, yeah, he can't. He couldn't do like the West thing, so he just did it with his fingers. Anyway, the point is like when you listen to Wes, um, it's like very melodic. Like everything he plays, at least in my opinion, is super melodic. So Randy, what I took from Randy um, is his sense of like melodicism. So that's to me really important. You can play like the most intricate bebop lines like Charlie Parker, but what makes it sound good is that overall melodic phrasing and how like everything is phrased. So. That's something that like when I play in my solos, I'm trying to think about always how uh, the phrase is and like, is it like melodic? Does it make sense? Or am I just playing like random notes to get the sound right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, a good like kind of an, the essence of like maybe what I'm talking about is like in the modern days, like Peter Bernstein, like when he plays, mm -hmm. no everything that he plays is like blues influenced and has like the essence of jazz, but it has all these like rich harmonies in what he's playing. And sometimes it's not like bebop language, but it still sounds like 
jazz and still sounds like quote unquote maybe bebop even but it's not does that make mm -hmm. sense so mm -hmm. yeah currently like what i'm working on is trying to get some of that into my plane so it's like how can i take like these triads and make them sound like the blues you know and that mm -hmm. comes from like thad at least in my opinion like all these like different like crazy like triads over these things and how can you get that to sound like you know the like straight ahead more straight ahead but still like have all these like crazy harmonies um so that's sort of right now, like what I'm working on. Um, and then as far as, um, you know, comping goes and all that stuff, um, I'm thinking always like still with melody. So like if I'm comping, right, if I'm playing um, here, I don't know, I can just, I don't know if I can, if you can hear that. <laughs> can you kind of hear that or yep, I don't know? I can hear it. Cool. So, you know, if you're playing on the guitar and you're just like playing like a blues or whatever, right? Um, like on the guitar, a lot of times people will just play, you know, the chords, right? They'll go like. Right? They'll play like the chords like that. But if you think about like the melody and trying to like create like a melody in your comping, that might help at least to me create some like interest in what you're doing, right? And that can be applied to your solos. So if you're like the melody was like So I was just trying to think of like melodies instead of shapes. And sometimes mm -hmm. it like gets you to some interesting things. And I think you can think about that in your soloing too. Like if you just take like little melody ideas and play like the triads and all that stuff off them, then you can get some like interesting um, ideas. You know, maybe I'll just try to take a chorus and see if I can do it. We'll see what happens. Oh, uh oh. <laughs> okay. So one, two, three, four. So I don't know. I'm always just trying to think about melodies when I play. So sure. there's some things I liked in there, some things I didn't, but hopefully that answers it musically about just always thinking about melodies and different sounds that you can use with those melodies. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I hear you. I, I It's sort of like, you know, when you're listening, uh, you know, sometimes you, you're listening to someone improvise and you go, oh, there goes another minor pentatonic. <laughs> there goes, uh, you know, in other words, they're playing along, you know, the changes. And I, I, I admit sometimes I play that way too, but if I take that raw material, I try to make something that sounds like a satisfying 
melodic line of some kind. I'm not just just blowing um, the notes of the of the changes. Yeah, exactly. Um, or what fits the changes. So, and I think that's what makes the the music like interesting in that way. Because if you transcribe, sometimes if you transcribe even like Parker, he'll play stuff. You're like, what is that? That doesn't make any sense. But it's like where it's going, and that's what makes yep. it make sense. So, yeah, it's the setup. Yeah. Yeah. Every good punchline needs a good setup. That's right. And that's yeah. what makes it impactful. And then people will mm -hmm. remember it forever, you know, mm -hmm. and it's yep. technically a mistake, but not really. So, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that's really an awesome way to think about it. Well, let's switch from uh, comping and improvisation to uh, composition. Sure. Um, when you write an original piece, what usually comes first to you in your inspiration, a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, or a particular set of chord changes, or does sometimes uh, you come up with a set of lyrics to put you in a particular mood? I think for me, uh, it starts like, you know, going back to what I said before, like it starts with the melody. So oftentimes okay. I'll try to create a melody and, um, you know, um, uh, on my, on my, record that I just put out. Um, it's called each step, the original mm -hmm. tunes on there. I think if you're listening to them, at least from my perspective as the composer, that they're very like strong. The reason that they hold together so well is their melodies and mm -hmm. the changes. Yeah. I guess you could argue like maybe sometimes the changes are, um, you know, there's a lot of two fives, but there's other things going on too. Besides that, um, maybe like a little bit of like Joe Henderson stuff where it's like, so you mm -hmm. look at the changes and you're like, what the heck? But then like, you look at the melody and you're like, oh, it makes sense. Or like mm -hmm. McCoy Tyner mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that in there too. Um, but it all, I think all that works because of the melody. So to me, if you can start off with just like a strong, even if you don't have to write like the whole melody, but if you just have like a strong melodic idea and then you just record yourself playing that and then you think about, okay, um, what are some things that, you know, I could do under this? And it's not necessarily like, what are like the coolest chords I can come up with, but you know, what does the melody when I listen to it, um, tell me that it needs. And I think that, um, I learned that from, uh, do you know Diego Rivera? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. He, I learned that from him. Cause I would, I remember I brought in one of the tunes actually, I, I brought in from that record. Uh, there's a tune on that one called change. And I brought them that it's the ballad of that record. And I brought that in to Diego and I was like, Hey, uh, prof, you know, I'm working on this tune. Can you help me out? And we're playing it. And then he just, uh, you know, we're playing it. And then he kind of just stops me. He's like, man, why are you putting in like a sharp 11 or why are you putting all this stuff like here? Like that doesn't make any sense. I was like, well, cause it goes with the melody. And he's like, that's not what the melody is telling you. And he's like, just, and then he just played the melody on the piano and he's like, what does this sound like? And he just like plays this chord and it just matches it. And it's like two fives, just like these easy two fives. But mm -hmm that's what the, that's what that song required. And sometimes some songs don't require that, but I think that's important is to start out with the melody and then let the melody guide you with the song. So. Okay. All right. Well, that's, you know, I always ask that of every composer, you know, what uh, a lot of, most people I think I talk to uh, always will tell me that that's melody is seems to, to kind of be the first thing that comes to mind. And then working out other things around it. Not always, but very often. Well, uh, other than a deadline, what typically motivates you to write? Uh, like a feeling, you know, it'll be, if it's like a musical feeling, like if I'm listening to, it doesn't matter the genre, right? I could be listening to like some metal or whatever. And if it like makes me feel a certain way, I try to like replicate that with my voice mm -hmm. um, through jazz. So that's a really strong motivator for me to write. Um, 
and you know writing is not in my like uh as like a working musician it's like a very small part of my income stream which mm -hmm. some people it's, you know so that kind of in some ways it's bad right but in other ways it's good because um, then I can write when I feel like it and when it inspires me and sort of like when, a lot of my other colleagues who, you know, they have to, you know, write like the big band chart by the X or, you know, write a octet mm -hmm. chart by X to get it to blah, 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 so they can get mm -hmm. paid. And then it becomes, um, you know, I don't, I'm not talking for them, but to me, like if I was working on that with, at least for composing, um, it would be harder to, um, feel connected to it and be more so like maybe how I, you know, like as a working musician, uh, when you view like the tunes in your repertoire and stuff like that, you have things that you play because that's what you do to make the money. Right. But you also have things that you play to inspire you. Right. So it's right. the composing. I'm lucky that I um, lean more on the inspiration end of it than the working end of it. But, uh, you know, maybe that'll change in the future and I'll have to get some, uh, complex under my belt. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you know, we all have different, uh, different, priorities at different times and so forth and different, uh, different, uh, uh, ways that we balance all that we do. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, I love performing. Uh, I do a little writing, but very little, and most of it's never original composition. I just try to write arrangements for groups that I work with, but, uh, and then I'm also an educator and you've also been an educator and, and I have a number of younger listeners, uh, can you share with us, please, what you have, what you tell or have told your students who are aspiring toward a career in music? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I guess it depends on like who I'm teaching, right? And what they want to get out of it. Um, when I taught at the colleges back in Michigan, um, I would teach like non-majors and like some majors mm -hmm. and the non-majors, it would always focused around, you know, like, what do they want to get out of music? Oh, I want to mm -hmm. get, um, I want to get, uh, I want to be a better soloist or I want to play this style or whatever. And then at that point you have to, you know, if they don't want to pursue like music in, in terms of like a financial, um, like in if they don't want to be financially dependent on the music then you can like you know dig into it and more in that way for more of an enjoyment but if like you have majors and like in my opinion you know you have to prepare students for the real world in both like terms of the good and the bad right so you have to be like okay if you're if you want to like do music and specifically jazz like for a living you know you have to tell them i think like how it is, right? So you can't just play like your music. You can't just play, you know, the things that you want to do. You have to be a working musician and like teaching my best, trying my best to like how I've made a living. Cause you know, I've been very lucky and I haven't had to like take like all, like, you know, a ton of part-time work. I've always been just doing music since my undergrad, which is nice. Um, but mm -hmm. I've done that because I've like always tried to like mold and like adapt to what the situation requires, even if I hate the music sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then um, like teaching them those lessons and trying to teach them how to be a working musician and how to, you know, how to re relate to others and how to, you know, not just it, not sit in the room and practice all day. Like you have to get out there and play with people. You have to like, uh, you know, be a part of the music scene. You can't just practice by yourself. So I think mm -hmm. that's the main thing that I would teach them is how to be a working musician along with like, you know, all the other stuff, right? Like the scales and oh, the yeah. language and all that stuff. But overall gain is like how to be, how to contribute to the society of music 
and you know be a healthy member of that and, and in turn if you give out then you'll get back that's at least mm -hmm. how i look at it so mm -hmm. i think that's it's an excellent piece of advice i think that's very true that you know i i i think you do get a lot back the more you give mm -hmm. uh and i i think that's sort of what has guided me in my career as an educator and currently i you know i still work with a lot of community based uh concert bands things like that i don't make uh much money at it which is fine because i think there's a mission maybe bigger than just making money of course i have the luxury of being able to say that because i get a social security check every month but but uh you know i i i i think uh you know you're right you have to be prepared to play all kinds of things i i you know i don't mean this at all in a pejorative sense uh but i you know i'll play i live in wisconsin so yes i play poker gigs and, uh, and it, you know, <laughs> nice. it's, it's not, yeah, yeah. it's not my numero uno thing that I go out and hustle and work for. But if I get a call, I've got a good buddy of mine who, who, uh, you know, he does, he does a lot of, uh, German band, polka band stuff in the area. And if he ne needs a trumpet player and he calls me, I don't turn him down because you know what I found out? is that the cash they give you at the end of a poker gig is just as green as what you get after the jazz gig. So that's know, right. That's you know, <laughs> and grows you have, on the same tree. <laughs> it grows on the same tree and, uh, and being prepared just to be, um, a good musician is, uh, is, a is a, a great way to go regardless of the style. Yes. Um, well, I know we're getting down toward the end of uh, our discussion for today, but I would like to know if you'd like to talk anything about uh, more about you mentioned it earlier, your debut album uh, that you recorded and the musicians that you recorded with. Yeah, that, that'd be great. Um, so that record was kind of a culmination of uh, it's entitled Each Step. Um, mm -hmm. It was released um through O2A, which is an umbrella of origin records. Um, and that was thanks to Rodney. He helped me out with that. So I'm, you know, always forever indebted to him on that. But um, that record was kind of my, uh, I wanted it to be, I know it seems cheesy. It's like the first record. So it's like, you know, some people do their thing where they're like, this is me and like, I'm different or whatever. And like, it comes back to, you know, what I was talking about before. And I believe that you're different no matter what. And so I wanted it to be like a tribute to the people that helped me get to the point that I'm at now. So I try to include all the people that helped me from like pretty much what I consider ground zero. Like my first lesson with Randy, we sat down and he was like, okay, we're just going to play like a two, five, one to see, we're just going to loop that. And I just want you to play. And then I just, I played. And then he was like, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you're just like playing theory, but like, let's like play some, like some language. And I like never heard that. So like we, that's that's where it was started out with with mm -hmm. like Randy Zell and out with Randy Zell is Randy Napoleon and um so he produced that record he wasn't on it but he was there the whole time you know helping mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. we had Rodney and Rodney uh, I don't think I've ever heard Swain before I heard Rodney <laughs> honestly like in person because mm -hmm. he has such like a deep lineage and when he plays a quarter note man uh, that that feeling it's it's unlike anything else so like he really taught me how to swing. And then we have Xavier Davis on that record. And uh, mm -hmm. 
Xavier taught me so much about like how to like comp when I listen to him. He's like one of the best compers in the world, in my opinion. You could just play. <laughs> I feel like half of the reason that record sounds good is because of like X and uh, you'll play like a bad note and he will just be like, oh, cool. And just like harmonize it this way, just randomly. And I don't, you know, he, I don't know if he has perfect pitch, but he just has really amazing ears and he can just hear anything you play Ron or not Ron and make it sound good. Mm -hmm. And so you know, that he taught me how to be like a comper. So having him on that record was, you know, very um, fulfilling for me. And mm -hmm. then we have uh, Keith Hall, who I played with Keith around Michigan, and he um, teaches at um, University of uh, a Western Michigan University. That's I was gonna say University of Kalamazoo. But that's where it's located is Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo, but, sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, and when I played with him, he always, you know, encouraged me to, um, like I would just play like my stuff, but he would be like, Hey, like he'd always give me stuff to like, listen to like, check out this or check out this. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. he was always there and it was really encouraging. And, uh, so I wanted to include him as well. So everyone, and then of course, Chris and Diego are on there. And I talked about Diego helping me with compositions and my friend, Chris Glassman, I just, uh, me and Chris were like put through the arena. We kind of like came in together at MSU, didn't know anything. And then just kind of helped each other. Like, you know, crawl out, you know, crawl through the hole of, you know, academia sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I feel like you have to have those people there because if you don't have that community, it kind of gets super lonely and, uh, makes you want to quit, you know? So yep. you have to have that community. And he was part of that community for me. So having him on that record was, um, also great. So that's what the record was. It was oh, awesome. um, putting everything that made me, me together and letting that play. So that's why it, it'll always be very special no matter how many other records I do. So, yeah, well, that's, that's great. That's great. Well, speaking of which, now I know you're up to your earlobes in grad school. That's right. Work, Cause working on a doctoral degree is, is not nothing. That's uh, something you do as a dilettante having done it myself, but uh, are you uh, looking at or planning to do any, any kind of recording projects uh, in the near future? Yeah, there's a, um, the, we haven't really talked about this in this interview, but very briefly, the other thing that I do, um, is that I'm an audio engineer and they have oh. an amazing studio here. Mm -hmm. um, probably one of the best that I've seen at like a university. It's like old school, you know, everything can be run through analog gear. They have like just walls and walls of outboard gear. And so, you know, when you can record a record, you know, like they did back in the days, you patch in everything, you, you set all your compressor, your EQ and everything, and then you go and you go, and then that's the record. And, um, you know, you can actually do it that way. And I know there's a lot of studios that do hybrid, but you can do it fully analog here, which is awesome. And that's uh, cool. So that's my, I'm half jazz, half recording for my doctorate. And, oh, um, okay. And I think that will be, you know, beneficial in multiple ways, but I'm hoping that I can, you know, in the future, I'm, I'm writing my dissertation. I'm on, um, I'm doing, it's still in the idea phase, but it's been approved. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah. So it's, uh, I'm going to do like an overview and analysis and I don't think anyone's done it. So I guess that's good. Um, but they seem to care a lot about that, but, um, no one's done it. It's an overview and analysis of, um, Oscar Peterson's drumless trio specifically is one with uh, Ray Brown and Herb Ellis. So um, mm -hmm. I want to dig into that music. So I was thinking of maybe doing a record in that kind of vein and then, uh -huh. you know, mixing it myself and, um, you know, trying to do all the different angles of that um, in the behind the scenes of it too. Um, so mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the next plan for the recording. And then as far as recordings that are going to come out that I'm on, 
Uh, this summer, there's one uh, before I left Michigan, I recorded one with another one with Xavier Davis, and that one has uh, Chris on it as well. It has Javier Enrique, who's a bass player. I think uh, he was on, uh, do you know Margarita Fava? She just came out with a record. It got like a bunch of reviews on Downbeat, but uh, she was a student at Michigan State, and uh, she uh just graduated from university of knoxville tennessee and then had a uh, greg tardy on that record and um javier was involved in that record and uh uh michael reed um okay. he was on so he was on that record too and so mm-hmm. that one's coming out this summer um so that's exciting so th- those are some other ways that you can hear me play awesome so. awesome awesome uh well and then now are you uh are you still in greeley right now or are you back in wichita falls um, I'm still in Greeley. Uh, this is where I'm going to be located at least until, you know, I graduate. Um, okay. So a couple more years. All right. So, uh, are you finding any opportunities to get out and play live in Greeley? A couple, you know, it's hard when you relocate, uh, like in Michigan, um, it got to a point where, uh, you know, I could just, I wouldn't have to like hustle as much. People would just call me and it mm-hmm, would be nice, mm-hmm. but you know, as you know, when you restart, you replant, it's always hard. So mm-hmm. there has been opportunities to play, not as much, but you know, that's just part of moving and going to a new place. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, and then, uh, I suppose with your work as a teaching assistant, uh, you, you might have opportunities to do, uh, informal things there at the university and, and so forth. Yeah, definitely. There has been opportunities there, but, um, the, the online, actually, the the YouTube stuff that helps me a lot too, because I have an online studio because of my YouTube channel that helps oh, okay. me. Uh, that's how a part of my income as well as I have some online students, and uh, you know, every week that that adds up, and uh, sure. that's all because of the YouTube stuff. I make a little bit of money off the YouTube, but not enough to live on, of course. But the online students are there because of the YouTube stuff. So sure. the online presence will always be there, and that's nice. Mm-hmm. I could be in Alaska and still have online students. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have, have gone that way. My wife started playing harp during the pandemic. And mm. uh, well, actually, that's not exactly when she started. She had kind of uh, her sister oh. <laughs> had given her one several years before. And it, but I should say she started getting serious about it. So she still to this day takes her lessons via Zoom every week. And then every once in a while, I'll drive her down to uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, because her teachers at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and uh, takes a, a lesson live. But yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, there's a lot of people that are that are, are going that way and uh, and uh, and nothing wrong with it because you can take a lesson with anybody anywhere. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, I know uh, working on a doctoral degree is very time consuming, demanding uh and uh, I tell you, I never thought I was going to get done either. But you're absolutely right. You, you've you got to have that, even when you're working on that degree, you've got to have that support system. And I know I had one and I I, I appreciate the people that I knew that helped uh, help me get through and I helped them get through. So it's right. uh, It's always, always great. So, well, it, Nathan, you know, we've been talking for oh, over an hour now. Is there is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Uh, I guess, uh, no, I just want to say thanks so much for having me. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Um, you know, keeping, 
letting people just speak their minds about jazz, uh, no matter where they are in their careers, if they're, you know, just starting out or if they're really far along, you know, there you have them and you let people talk. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that's kind of, uh, kind of my goal is to, uh, I started this during the, during the pandemic because I was hungry to talk to other musicians, uh, because of course we weren't doing any rehearsals or gigs or anything. And, and, uh, and I, uh, I thought, you know, maybe I'll start a podcast. And I, uh, it's been a great uh, uh, boon to my spirit uh, just to be able to talk to people all over the country, all over the world who love music like I love music and, and to hear what, uh, what people are doing. But Nathan, I want to thank you for taking time uh, to talk with me today. And uh, I want to wish you all the best uh, with your degree and Thanks. everything else that, toward a continued uh, successful musical future. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Craig. <laughs> you bet. You have a great rest of your day. My discovery composer of the week is Kari Watson. Kari, born in 1998, is a composer, performer, and sound artist working between the mediums of contemporary concert music, electroacoustic music, live performance, and interactive installation work. Motivi motivated by a passion for narrative and musical drama, Watson works to create music that is clear, tactile, and emotionally driven. As a performer, playing analog synthesizer, she engages a customizable spatialization software built in Max MSP with spatial speaker arrays to further explore issues of tactility and drama in immersive sonic environments. With roots in vocal study and performance, her work is informed by the vocal line and often incorporates text. In recent works, she has explored different ways of working with text and language, such as text construction, deconstruction, with IPA and polytextual settings. Inspired by her burgeoning research on electronic mediation of the voice and gender and sexuality performance, Watson has also begun using her voice as a raw material to be manipulated and processed towards various dramatic ends. Her work has been performed and recorded in the United States and abroad by several ensembles, most recently Chicago's Civic Orchestra, the Ekmelis Vocal Ensemble with Sandbox Percussion, Quator Diotima, Axiom Brass, the Constellation Men's Ensemble, and the Friction Quartet, among others. Watson's work has also been featured in a variety of concerts and festivals, such as on Chicago's Frequency Festival, the Ear Taxi Festival, and at the New Music Gathering. Upcoming festivals include the École d'Art Américaine de Fontainebleau in Fontainebleau, France, and the 2023 Darmstädtler Ferenkurs. Watson also 
pursued a love of creative communities by participating in and interning at various artist residencies, such as the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Arts, Letters, and Numbers, and the McDowell Colony. Current projects include a piece for noise, saxophone quartet, spatial synthesizer performance, and a set of IP etudes for solo voice and electronics. In tandem with her compositional work, Watson has been teaching private composition lessons since 2018 and has taught lessons for Through the Staff, a nonprofit focused on promoting equity and accessibility to marginalized communities through quality music instruction at no cost since 2020. Recently featured by the Washington Post as one of the 23 for 23 composers and performers to watch this year, Watson has received several awards and distinctions for her work, including a 2022 Charles Ives Scholarship from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a 2022 Student Composer Award from the Broadcast Music Industry, and the 2023 Nirenberg, Gertz, and Hammond Prize from the Musicians Club of Women. Watson holds a Bachelor of Music from Oberlin Conservatory in Composition with a minor in TIMARA, Technology in Music and Related Arts, and is currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Chicago on a full fellowship from the Division of the Humanities under Augusta Reed Thomas. In my show notes, is a link to a YouTube performance of a live improvisation performed at Chime Fest 2023 by Kari Watson on modular synthesizer and Dana Jessen on bassoon. Well, that puts a big fireworks design wrap on episode number 144. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances, are, will be posted on my Facebook page for the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing jazz bassist and vocalist Julia Adamy. Having already interviewed Nicole Zaretis and Tana Alexa, Julia will complete the trinity of artists that compose the group Sonica. Other upcoming interviews include Megan Parnell and Dave Barnes of the Toronto-based roots rock band Bywater Call, New York-based jazz trombonist and educator Ryan Keberly, Johnson City, Tennessee-based Florencia Rusinal of the band Florencia and the Feeling, and Seattle, Washington-based jazz bassist Stanley Ruvanov. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, a composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at H-U-R-S-T-C at U-W-M 
edu. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.